0: Hello and welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology. I'm Dr. Todd Schlesinger, your Editor-in-Chief. We have another exciting podcast for you today. We hope that you enjoy. Welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology, JAAD Podcast, December 16, 2022. I am Dr. Brad Glick and I am Clinical Assistant Professor of Dermatology at the FIU Herbert Wertheim College of Medicine and Chair of Dermatology at the Larkin Health System, Miami, Florida. I will be your host. This journal of the American Academy of Dermatology's web-based podcast feature is brought to you by Dialogues in Dermatology. Today, we will review the January JAD article Ducravacitinib versus placebo and apremilast in moderate to severe plaque psoriasis. Efficacy and safety results from the 52-week randomized, double-blinded, placebo-controlled, phase three POETIC PSO-1 trial. Joining me today is Dr. April Armstrong. Dr. Armstrong is professor of dermatology and associate dean at the University of Southern California. She also serves as vice chair at USC and leads the psoriasis program, including clinical trial research. Dr. Armstrong obtained her medical degree from the Harvard Medical School and completed her dermatology residency at Harvard. She also obtained a master's degree in public health from Harvard School of Public Health. And prior to joining the faculty of the University of Southern California, Dr. Armstrong was also vice chair of dermatology at the University of California, Davis, and later at the University of Colorado. Dr. Armstrong's clinical expertise lies in inflammatory skin diseases, especially psoriasis and atopic dermatitis. She has conducted over 150 clinical trials and published over 380 high impact articles in scientific journals. She holds multiple leadership positions at professional societies, serving as the chair of the medical board of the National Psoriasis Foundation, co-president for the group in research and assessment of psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis, you know that as GRAPA, and counselor for the International Eczema Council the International Psoriasis Council, and Board of Director for the American Academy of Dermatology. And I'm very fortunate to serve with Dr. Armstrong on the Board of Directors. Dr. Armstrong has also served on the editorial boards for the journals JAMA Dermatology and the Journal of the American Academy of Dermatology. April, welcome.
1: Thank you, Brad, so much for having me here. And I'm sorry, uh, apologies to the listeners for having to listen to that long intro of me. (laughs) But it's so great to be here.
0: Well, that that very long intro is very well-deserved. Thanks for being here with us. Let's jump right in. We've got a lot to talk about. What exactly is tyrosine kinase two or what we like to call TIK2?
1: Yes, so TIK2 is a Janus kinase. And if we recall uh, during our medical school and perhaps undergrad days, Janus kinase are molecules that work intracellularly and their job is to put phosphate on two different things. So TIC2 is a part of that kinase family, and it typically works in pairs with other family members of the Janus kinase family. And together what they do is that they can associate with different receptors. So when there is a cytokine that binds to a receptor and it has to be typically specific types of cytokines, when it binds to a receptor, then TIC2 and its partner, can then associate with that particular receptor. And what it does is that it puts a phosphate on the receptor and that phosphate then attracts these other molecules, typically stat molecules to the receptor. And then it also puts another phosphate onto these stat molecules. And these stat molecules dimerize, they then travel to the nucleus and then they essentially impart downstream actions working as transcription factors in the nucleus.
0: Sounds like an interesting mechanism for the development of inflammation and a whole host of diseases. What role does TIC2 play And speaking of this particular article that we reviewed in psoriatic disease, thinking of mechanism of disease and then mechanism of pathway and then mindset wise as to how a therapy like Ducravisitinib would actually work in psoriasis?
1: Yes, absolutely. So when we think about psoriasis, what we note is that there are certain types of inflammatory cytokines that are increased. And in particular, IL-23, we know that IL-23 is considered this master regulator, and it's very important for the production downstream of IL-17 from the Th17 cells. So IL-23 is we, we want to target that, and there are different ways of targeting that. And with TIK2 inhibition, the way in which we can think about that particular pathway is that IL-23 can bind to its receptor. And then the way IL-23 transmit that particular signal is that it requires then TIK2 in combination with JAK2 then being associated with the IL-23 receptor and having the TIK2 and JAK2 phosphorylate the different molecules. So when we think about the pathways that are specific to psoriasis, the inflammatory pathways that are very specific to psoriasis, we're talking about pathways that typically involve tick 2 And therefore inhibiting tick 2 makes this a very attractive mechanism of action when we're thinking about drug development. Now, in addition to TIC2 being associated with this IL-23 signaling, TIC2 is also associated with IL-12 signaling, which is important also in the pathogenesis of psoriasis and also type one interferon signaling, which as we know is important during the initiation pathways of psoriasis.
0: What is Ducraviscentinase and what is allosteric inhibition talks about that in this really nice article before uh, they move on to the actual clinical trial data. We'll talk about that, but what is ducravacitinib?
1: So ducravacitinib is a small molecule and it's an oral medication and it works intracellularly and it inhibits TIC2. And we just talked about how TIC2 is very important in terms of being pivotal for transmitting the intracellular signaling in psoriasis. So by inhibiting tic 2 ducravacitinib then have its efficacious effects on psoriasis. Now, when we think about ducravacitinib, there's a lot can be said about names. So ducravacitinib, at the very beginning uh, deu do stands for deuteration of this particular small molecule. And deuteration of the compound actually can contribute to the selectivity of this molecule for TIC2, such that it's very specific for TIC2. And that specificity is very important because by being specific for TIC2, it is uh, then essentially not binding to the other Jack, Jack one, two, or three. And that specificity, that multitude of uh, specificity for TIC2 essentially can translate into its safety profile as well. The end of the name, Ducravacetinib, the tinib part, refers to the tyrosine kinase inhibitor piece. And so this particular small molecule has about 10 hours of terminal half-life. And uh, we consider this first in class because this is a novel mechanism action in what we see in terms of the psoriasis therapies. Wonderful.
0: Let's get into the meat and potatoes of the actual article itself. Uh, Tell us about this phase three POETIC-1 trial. What was the form and function of the trial, the primary endpoints, and ultimately the outcomes from the trial?
1: Yes, absolutely, Brad. As you know, uh, in psoriasis, as well as in a number of our inflammatory uh, skin diseases, typically we need two trials, to large multicenter trials as phase three trials to get a drug to evaluation by the FDA. So this particular one is POETIC PSO-1 study. It's one of the two pivotal studies for Ducravacitinib. And the study is designed such that it's a multicenter study, double-blinded, and patients are randomized to three different arms. They are placebo, Ducravacitinib, as well as a premolast. Now the Premalast comparator arm is very important here because we want to be able to compare this new medication to crevacitinib with an existing oral medication of Premalast, which is used for psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. So in this particular study, patients were randomized into these three arms. They were studied up till week 16 initially. And then after week 16, the placebo group goes over to the ducravacitinib group. And then later at week 24, the apremilast arm, then depending on their response, either continue on apremilast if they're a responder to apremilast, or they are then going to the ducravacitinib group if they did not respond to apremilast. So this study design is very helpful because it's quite real world as well. There were two co-primary endpoints, POSI 75, or at least 75% improvement in the POSI score from baseline, and as well as SPGA score of zero or one. And so these are all moderate to severe psoriasis patients to begin with. So very large disease burden, as you can imagine. And another thing to note is that the vast majority actually either had oral therapies or had biologics in the past. So not hundred percent of them are systemic naive patients. So again, very real world population of moderate to severe patients that we're looking at. And so what they found was that at week 16, which is the primary endpoint 58% 58% of patients on the ducravacitinib group achieved posi-75 compared to 35% of patients on the apremilast group and compared to 13% in the placebo group. So what we saw was that at the primary endpoint, as statistically as well as clinically significant superiority of ducravacitinib over apremilast. And the delta, I would say, is pretty sizable. How about later when we look at week 24, we also see the same thing. And in fact, what we see is that slight increase in the efficacy that continues beyond week 16. So at week 24, what we saw was that 69%, so nearly 70% of the patients on Ducravacitinib have achieved posi-75. So have have improved at least 75% in their psoriasis disease severity. And this 69% in the ducravacitinib group is compared to 38% in the apremilas group. And what we also know is that then at one year, so the study was one year, at one year period of time, overall, we see a good maintenance of that effect, whether we're talking about POSI-75 or POSI-90 or POSI-100. And for example, at one year for POSI-90, we see about 44% of the patients achieving POSI-90, which we know is a very high bar. One other thing I just wanted to point out, ducravacitinib was also studied in different special sites. So for example, for the scalp, what was seen was that 70% of the patients achieved clear, almost clear, when they had moderate to severe scalp disease at baseline at week 16. So we see improvement in the scalp, also in palmer plantar psoriasis, as well as nail psoriasis with ducravacitinib from the PSO1 study.
0: The improvement in the scalp and the nails prompts me to be thinking that these are particular markers for psoriatic arthritis. I believe the drug has been in study for psoriatic arthritis. And so hopefully perhaps for our patients who have that component of psoriatic disease, uh, we'll see the drug uh, approved in that setting as well. You know, one of the things, April, that also impressed me with this trial, the apremilast arm data matched what we saw in the Esteem one and the Esteem 2 clinical mm-hmm. trials that led to the approval of a premilast And so when I look at that, to me, it impresses me that that's reproducible and that the trial was well run. Additionally, in the clinical trial data you just reviewed in the control period specifically, that benchmark, the statistical analysis, I believe was non-responder imputation, which is really stringent. And so I think that this data is really believable. Thank you for Absolutely. presenting that. What were the safety signals? I mean, this drug looks like it works very nicely. I would almost uh, go out on a limb and say that it's pretty historic. You know, Apremilast was a very unique product. We've had it in our toolbox for a long time. It's helped a lot of our patients, but if I put it in simple numbers, do is like one and a half times more effective from an efficacy standpoint, so that's great. But what about safety? Our listeners wanna know about the safety. Does it look like it's a safe product? And, and I'll say this, the drug now, I believe, is FDA approved. It's now been on the market a few months. And, and the question also I'll throw out to you is, is there a box warning? You, you talk about how it's kind of in that Jack family. And so is it the same or, or is it different? So tell us. Now, that's a kind of a loaded question. But <laughs> I think it's important that when we see efficacy that is high efficacy, what does the safety look like?
1: Yes, I think safety is very important, especially when we are thinking about oral medications that patients need to take for a long period of time. And I think the safety profile of ducravacitinib, the rationale for that, it really arkens back to the mechanism action. So it, it is a allosteric inhibitor. So ducravacitinib is different from Most of the other JAK inhibitors that we've seen on the market, so most of the other JAK inhibitors, the reason that we see some of the safety signal is that there's cross-reactivity between the other JAKs. And the other JAK inhibitors typically bind to the active site or the catalytic site, which is shared or conserved. It's very similar among the different JAKs. Ducrabacitinib is very unique in that it doesn't bind to that active site. In contrast, it binds to the regulatory site. And the regulatory domain is very distinct from one kinase to the other. And as a result, it has this selectivity that it rarely touches the other jacks. So what we saw because of this unique mechanism action, what we saw in terms of the safety is that, for example, the laboratory parameters that were seen with the ducravacitinib were very similar to that of placebo as well as a premolast. Importantly, when we look at discontinuation rates due to adverse events, for example, at week 16, we actually saw that the ducravacitinib arm had the lowest discontinuation rate as compared to either a premolast or placebo. So this is very important because that tells me what is the likelihood in the real world that the patients are going to be able to continue with this medication. For oral medication, we we don't see nausea or diarrhea signals. In fact, the the rates for nausea and diarrhea for ducravacitinib were either equal to that placebo or numerically lower than that placebo. And the rates for diarrhea and nausea were quite a bit lower compared to a premalast. When we look at the placebo control period, uh, there were a few things that were elevated at low rates over placebo, and those are transient to CPK elevations. There were low rates of herpes simplex and also low rates of acne and folliculitis. Most of these events were mild in terms of severity, and the patients were able to continue the medication with those events, and and these events have resolved with the continued use of these medications. And importantly, what we see in terms of For example, when we have the approved other JAK inhibitors, the box warning is not present for ducravacitinib. So this is something that's very important to note. Also, we do not see elevated rates of major cardiovascular events or VTEs or malignancy rates with ducravacitinib when we look at the rates as compared to the comparator arms. So these are all quite positive and proven safety profiles through the clinical trials, not only in PSO-1 study, but also in PSO-2 study that gives us confidence to the safety of this medication.
0: So safety looks good through one year, low rates of discontinuation. Can we expect additional long-term safety data?
1: Yes, we can expect long-term safety data. And in fact, what we have currently are two-year safety data now available. And what is seen with that is that with two years, the two-year data look very similar to the one-year data that we just spoke about. I did want to mention that uh, in the package insert, it it does mention elevated triglycerides in some of the patients. Now that was seen in all three arms and also the, the mean, elevation compared to the other arms was about 10 milligram per deciliter. So overall, uh, this was not uh, associated with uh, with clinical significance that would require uh, any intervention. So for patients who may have uncontrolled triglyceridemia and who may not have a primary care physician, then periodic monitoring for triglycerides may be necessary in that patient population. But overall, with regards to what labs to check in our patients, essentially no tests are required for treatment initiation other than TB evaluation. So you do need to do a TB evaluation, be it quantiferon test or some other TB evaluation. Unless the patient have known or suspected liver disease, then you may want to then check baseline LFT for those patients. Also, no dose titration or adjustment is needed. So it's a very simple once daily dosing. It's important to know that there's no known drug interactions with ducravacitinib at this time, and our patients can take ducravacitinib with or without food. In terms of long-term monitoring, I think that at this time, there are no required long-term monitoring per the package insert. But certainly, I would say that for us clinicians, we can take that in terms of a case by case basis. And I think with a new medication that just got approved, I think certainly one cannot be faulted for for more frequent or more regular monitoring in the beginning.
0: That was fantastic. And Dr. Armstrong, this has been so helpful. Uh, I think for our listeners that maybe didn't get a chance to read this article, uh, I think that the information that you presented is detailed and very helpful for our understanding of the use of decravacitinib in clinical practice. And I think it's fantastic that we continue to be able to add therapies to our ladder, our therapeutic ladder, and into our toolbox for our patients with psoriatic disease. So with that said, I want to thank you. I hope everyone's enjoyed uh, another edition of the JAD podcast for Dialogues in Dermatology and until the next Dialogues in Dermatology. Thank you.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: We hope you've enjoyed this edition of Dialogues in Dermatology. This is Todd Schlesinger, your editor-in-chief. For more podcasts, including bonus issues, check us out online at the website of the American Academy of Dermatology or through the Dialogues in Dermatology app. You can now also sync your subscription to your favorite podcast app. New podcasts are released each week in addition to our monthly JAD podcasts. We hope you enjoy these new options for listening to dialogues and the increasing content for your listening pleasure. Thank you.